Good afternoon. Um, we have all these bells and things we say and places we put things and uh, incense and candles and bowing and all this stuff. Um, and sometimes it seems like we don't really, all we need to do is sit here, right? And just to listen to someone talk, do we really need all this stuff around it? Um, and it's sometimes, uh, as, as we can see here, uh, we're not so familiar with it. Some people are familiar with it, others aren't. Um, we've introduced rituals little by little, so we're never sure which ones we've introduced and which ones we haven't and when and who knows how to ring the bell and who knows how to chant. And uh, There's something really sweet about it, actually, I find. Um, If I think back to the beginning of my practice, my own personal practice, I didn't know anything about any of that. I just liked to sit and look into the nature of being and the nature of this. And I remember the first time I went to a retreat. Many of you, this is your first time. The first time I went was because I wanted to see what it was like to sit with other people, to share what I liked so much about sitting with other people. And I was quite surprised when I arrived in shorts, t-shirt, uh, and it was much more formal where I went than what is here. To some of you, this seems very formal, but where I went was much more formal. And people were wearing robes and it was more strict and we were facing the wall and everyone seemed to know what they were doing and um, I was really surprised. I had no idea that you couldn't just sit in shorts and a t-shirt and just sit there. Um, and when I started coming to Portugal of course, I had many years of practice in between my first retreat and when I first came here. Uh, I had to start over again. We all started over again together with nothing. No bells and cushions and anything. Um, and it was very fresh and sweet again. And then little by little throughout the years, we've I reintroduced rituals when they had some kind of meaning for me and that I thought had a meaning for the group. Uh, a meaning in the sense that the rituals, the forms, the, the various ways we walk and sit and have set the schedule, the intention is to allow us to put down our personal stuff. So. The reason people in that place where I went before, in my original Sangha, the reason they wore robes is so that they could take off their usual clothing and everyone was dressed the same way. 
So you didn't even have to think about what you would put in your suitcase, what you would wear. You just wore that thing. Everybody wore the same thing. The rituals I've introduced here are, have that same spirit of, for example, orioki, the f eating practice. It helps us to just be present to eating. <coughs> just be present to this moment, whatever is happening, without thinking about, of course we do think about it, but do I like this food? Is this the food I want? Um, I want more food. I want less food. Um, I don't like this fruit. Um, I don't understand what's going on. We might have all of those thoughts, but the more we do it, the more we just let ourselves go to it, into it, the more we have an experience of what sometimes we call the absolute or the impersonal, this impersonal aspect of ourselves that we all share. It's what we share, all have in common. Sometimes I think of it as like the lowest common denominator, although people tell, think of that as being negative the lowest common denominator. I don't. I think of that as being like the thing we all share. Um, and the more that we, the more that we practice the ritual, so I took the one of eating, but we can also say sitting in, in a specific way. We ring the bell at the beginning after 30 minutes, we ring the bell again. During those 30 minutes, you're not thinking about, oh, this is too long, I think I'll get up and do something else. Um, you might be thinking that, but because you've accepted the rituals, you've expect, accepted to come here and do this together, it's liberating. When we sit at home on our own, at least me, I don't have that same discipline. I have, it's more easy for me now than it was when I first started this practice, but you know, I could easily be sitting there and think that I will sit for 30 minutes, but then the phone rings, or my cat comes, or the doorbell rings, or I just start thinking about, oh, I forgot to buy that, uh, those apples for the pie that I'm going to make later. You know, and so then I think, oh, I better get up and do that before the shop closes and I stop sitting. <laughs> um, whereas here, we don't, because of the structure, we don't even have to think about the apples. Somebody else bought the apples. We don't even have to think about answering the phone because the phone is not here. Um, we don't have to think about uh, the cat coming in. There, there might be a cat coming in. But we don't have to do anything about it. We hear the, you know, the festivities in the village. We don't have to worry about it. It's just what is. Um, the candle's just burning. We're just hot. Um, the train just passes. The rituals help us to just experience it without entering into our opinions and our ideas and our <coughs> desires of what we want to be happening or not. Um, the rituals, so even the bowing ritual, let's say, 
This is often a controversial one. People have difficulty with that. Um, and I know when I first came, I thought, what is this? You know, these people dressed in these robes and they're bowing in front of a statue and all of this. And I came to realize um, that it was not so much about bowing to someone or something. In fact, it's not bowing to someone or something. It's another moment of letting go. So I'm like, laying myself down, letting go of all the stuff, who I think I am, good, bad, special, not special, um, how I want to be, how I want people to see me. Like I said about the chit-chat that we have when we're not in silence. Um, bowing for me is that as well. It's just a moment of dropping, basically dropping myself but everything that comes along with that. Um, in the position I have agreed to hold for you in this Sangha, uh, because someone has to do it, so I've agreed to do it. Um, so I'm the one that leads the bowing. So I'm setting the example of letting go of all of this, letting go of my position, letting go of my ideas, letting go about something I can tell you or not tell you, um, letting go of how different this place looks than the last time we came here. We used to, this used to be a really big room. Went back there and this was all open. And that's what I was expecting when I saw that we had more than, you know, we had 45 people. I, I was expecting, oh, no problem, this room is big big, airy, COVID, no problem, there's a lot of air, uh, no problem. And when I came downstairs and I saw this, I thought, oh no, <laughs> what will we do? But we do it, we just do it. And I put that down, I let go of that. As best I can, of course, you know, I might come back to it, and Actually, I haven't thought about the fact that the room changed until just now when it came up. So, um, And sometimes I have to think back to, okay, so when I start a retreat, usually this is what happens. It all seems very chaotic and disorganized and I can start thinking, oh, you know, we should do this, I should do that, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do that, and all this stuff that I tell myself. And I have to, when I sit then, I have to come back to, what's the point? What's the really essential point? What are we here for? And then, if I can return to that, all the rest of it doesn't matter. You know, it's okay. You know, even I, I forget what it was yesterday, but I said to Tiago something about, oh, that was chaotic, or like, well, I forget what it was. What? It was after the meeting? Yeah. Yeah. And I, Tiago said something to me like, well, it'll be okay, or well, something like that. Yeah. Um, or Juan said to me in the kitchen, let's see, Juan here. Yeah. Um, he's, I said, so, are you good? Is it? 
good? And he said, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he said, you know, that's what we do here, right? We just, we work with what we have. It was planned. You know, he planned out the menus and he planned out the shopping and everything. But as we say, the best way laid plans go astray. You know, you can plan all you want, but it won't be like that. It won't happen like you think. So my two students gave me teachings yesterday. <laughs> Uh, and helped me then return to, okay, so what's the point? What's the point? Uh, and it really helps that we have so many newcomers. Because that helps us then come back to, okay, so what's, what, what, is, what is it that we need to do for them? How can we best serve these people who are here for the first time? Because the people who are here, who have been coming for years, of course, how, what can we do to serve them as well? But it's very different because we don't have to think so much about how to set up the room, how to chant, how to do things because everybody is used to it. Which can be a problem too because then everybody becomes an expert. <laughs> and, and then know, thinks they know how to do it and tells other people how to do it and says, you're not doing it right, or this is how it should be done. Um, so it helps us all let go of the expert, too. Let's us uh, return to what we call beginner's mind, to the very beginning. Um, sometimes we say so, and we all have met this challenge. So you have friends who don't know anything about practice, about Zen practice. And they ask you, well, so what is it that you do all the time? You know, we don't go there for a week and sit there and do. And we all, it's kind of a challenge to, well, how do you explain it to them? Um, I even had this last weekend with my brother, who, of course, he knows I've been doing this forever. And I said, well, next Sunday, tomorrow, today, my family has a Zoom call every Sunday night. And I said, I won't be on the Zoom call next Sunday because I'm on retreat in Portugal. And my brother, out of nowhere, said, well, so, so what do you do there? What do you do all week? And I thought, oh boy, what, how weird to begin, you know? And, and then it was, how did you get into this? Wow, I have never told them, you know? I never told them this. And... Um, so the issue of silence and the swimming pool and, <laughs> and all this stuff came up. And he said, oh, so you mean they can't just go in the village and buy souvenirs? I said, well, they can if they want to. Uh, that's not what they came for, but they can, of course. Um, and I think, he, I think they understood. So my, my mother and my sister were there, too, and they've heard it before. But... Um, I think they, I think he, he understood. Um, and when it was to the reason why I started the practice, and you may all have, some of you have encountered this question too, probably, with your families, friends, whatever. Why do you, why did you start doing this? And even, even now I could ask you each that question. Probably when you come and see me in an interview, I will ask you. Um, 
why do you, why do you do this? Why did you come here? Or how did you start meditating? And when it came to that question from my brother, um, I had to answer it somehow. And I returned to what had started it for me because my question when I started was, who am I? And that I was, it wasn't, it wasn't like an identity crisis. It was a deep existential question. Who am I? I don't know who I am. And I tried to explain that and, um, and then explained how, so then my brother said, well, so then after you started doing this, did, did, did you find an answer or did it change? And I said, yes, absolutely, but no. <laughs> um, so in a sense, that's, Zen is full of contradictions, right? Um, and that is one of them. Uh, yes, everything changed. And at the same time, nothing changed. So, and I think my, my sister and my brother and my mother could understand that because I said to them at one point, you know, this sounds, this sounds really, you know, like crazy and like some sort of trip that I'm telling you and everything, but it's not. And they all three said, no, we know it's not, you know. Um, so I, I think that what's important when I say coming back to the point, the point is that, so you look into whatever it is that brought you here. So your question, whatever it is, and you stay true to that. And you don't give up on whatever it is that has brought you here. Honor that, trust that. And Whatever that is, and if you really stay true to it, your life will be transformed. Although other people won't necessarily notice. Or, you know, like I say with myself, I kept the same job. I kept working as a journalist and I had two children. Um, I still went, you know, visited my family in the U.S. every summer and went on holidays and uh, went to the cinema and my life from uh, people who didn't know me really didn't look much different probably. At the same time, what changes the more we do this is, and sitting helps us to become more clear and more aware of what to indulge in, what not to indulge in, what to stay with, what not to stay with, um, what to um, what to focus on and what not to focus on. Um, these are all questions we have all the time. Well, should I really indulge in this or not? Should I stay with this issue or not? Should I, it helps us to know what to choose. So should I choose this or should I choose that? Um, and the more we sit, the more we delve into this practice, the rituals really help with this. The rituals put us in a situation where we don't have a choice. When we go out of here, out of this retreat, then we have to let go of that structure and make choices again. 
And you may find that it's easier, in a sense. You may find that after sitting here for a week, things are clearer, more settled, calmer. And then it's easier to not get all caught up in all kinds of things. Um, it, we lose that very quickly, though, when we go back out and what we call the worldly world. We lose it. Everything is impermanent. It's not really lost. I say I use this word lose, but it's not really lost. That's who you truly are, and that's how things truly are. But that all becomes covered up with all the activity that we get caught up in. <coughs> and any... Um, Any attempt to hang on to it when you go out, I say go out, it's not really out, but any attempt to hang on to it will just drive it farther away. You will just lose, lose it more and more. Um, I have this strange thing, I forgot my glasses. I realized it when I got to the airport. <laughs> and I had about 15 minutes before my flight would leave, and so I ran to around the airport looking for a place to by, you know, you can buy just magnifying glasses. So that's what I ended up with. Um, and it's a little strange because it's almost like things are curved or something. And the page looks a little weird. It makes it so that I can read and it's fine. I can look at my telephone and whatever. But, um, but it's, and they don't stay on my head like my old ones do. So, um, so I just wanted to look back at some notes that I made just to be sure I don't uh, forget. Oh yeah, you know, um, the, this, the sitting, it also helps us to not only what we should let go of, what we should focus on, what we should not focus on, but what we should enhance, you know, what we should cultivate should in the sense of what we would like to cultivate. What is appropriate for us? What is healthy for us? What benefits this? What helps us become more clear instead of what makes us more confused? Uh, I think we all probably realize that um, we become more confused when we're trying to do 10 things at the same time and um, listening to music and uh, trying to read the newspaper and have a conversation with someone and cook. All that at the same time doesn't work very well. Um, women, we tend to think that because we're good at multitasking that that's, that's, uh, it's, it's good, it's healthy might be more beneficial for us to just focus on one thing, um, one thing at a time. And the more that we sit, the more that we cultivate that possibility to focus on one thing at a time. Um, someone, a young mother, who wrote to me the other day and was despairing about not having any time to sit, to do her meditation. 
And I can absolutely relate because as a young mother, I had that same issue. And we have other mothers here, another young mother here who certainly has that issue. Um, and so she said what she decided to do was to meditate while she was breastfeeding. And it didn't work. <laughs> and I said to her, you know, I'm not surprised because you can't... If, if you are trying to meditate while doing something else, well, you're defeating what it is to... Our meditation is to just be here with just this. Um, and when we're a young mother, of course, it's hard. When we have a busy life as a professional, it's hard. When we have to take care of aging parents or, um, you know, make house payments and fix the car and um, inflation is taking over and um, COVID and war and, you know, all this stuff that the climate crisis, all of this is occupying us. And the best thing we can do for ourselves and for the climate and for our families and maybe even for paying our house, making our house payments is to sit sit make the time have the discipline to just sit because then we become more clear and we cultivate this awareness and then we know what to choose my just sitting on my cushion is not going to solve this dire climate situation we're in that's true but it won't make it worse and it might help me to see more clearly a way to act in a more appropriate manner. Um, and it, our sitting has an effect on others because then we interact with people differently and we have a different appreciation for the trees and the plants and the rivers and the, the birds and the butterflies. And sometimes we think that we need to um, act, and there are moments when we do need to act. However, um, it makes it easier for us to act if we can just stop and sit and take that moment, even if it's five minutes, <coughs> before indulging in whatever it was, the anger or the um, getting a Big Mac or, um, I don't know, maybe you don't call it a Big Mac in Portugal, you know, the McDonald's sandwich, you know, um, or, uh, I don't know, whatever it is that you, usually it has to do with emotions, usually it's with anger. Um, but, also, but greed is one of them too. We have what we call the three poisons. So greed, anger, and ignorance. Ignorance is delusion. Uh, is not seeing the oneness of things. Seeing only the differences. Um, it's not seeing that lowest common denominator. 
It's seeing only all the things that we don't share. Uh, and then hanging on to that. That's ba a very basic description of definition of delusion. And when we don't see the oneness, then we indulge in greed and anger. The other two are poisons. And we see poisons because they poison our existence. They make us unhappy. And because we're unhappy, we then behave in sometimes very difficult uh, um, you know, inappropriate ways with people that then creates more suffering, more discomfort, more pain. Um, we hurt people, we harm ourselves, we harm others, and, and then it's a spiral. So if we can come and sit and just let things be, we begin to get a notion of this oneness, this unity of all things. And not to see only what separates us. Of course, I'm separate from the person sitting here and here and here and here. Spatially, we are separate. Um, in terms of our age, we're different. We are separate. So in time, we're separate. Yet right at this very moment, we are all here now. And the more we see that, the more we can see that this, this spatial separation is not what we think it is. It's there and it's necessary. We, it's necessary to separate, to see the differences, to respect them. But when we put things in there appropriate, when we keep things, when we see the oneness of things, then we can keep them in their appropriate places better because we see what makes them singular. When I see the oneness of each of us, I can appreciate totally what makes her unique. And I can appreciate totally what makes me unique. The same with the plants and the, you know, we, we talk about the biosphere, but we are the biosphere and we're all interdependent. We're all one. The, the animals, the plants, the other people, the, the, the air, the water, the mountains, we're all one. Um, we're all interdependent. It's, there's no way we can separate ourselves from each other. Um, it's we're all in it together. You know? it, was, it was you know your the the head of the UN, a Portuguese man, who said just recently, you know, either we will collectively resolve this, or it's we are going to a collective suicide. It's collective. I just picked that crisis because that's something that's very you know, present for all of us. But it's the same thing at every moment. So when we eat Oriyoki, we all start eating together and we wait until everyone has finished because if someone is still eating, we are all still eating. We're not separate in that. The ritual is there to help us see that. Um, we all clean our bowls together. We all stand up together. 
um, we all chant together. And that, those rituals, so I say they open us to, the, to an experience of the impersonal, of oneness, um, of even what we call the sacred. Sometimes we, the sacred, we talk about things being sacred and holy. And, but, you know, one of our great ancestors said, there is nothing holy. There's no, nothing sacred. Which means... Everything is sacred. Everything is holy. That experience of non-separation, of the impersonal, is an experience of the sacred, of the preciousness of all things, um, the impermanence. It's all changing at all, all the time. Um, Nothing lasts, whether we want it to or not. Um, and, you know, we have these vows that we chant that you heard last night that we chanted. That are, that's one of our um, rituals that we chant. Uh, and there are many different translations of it. So in our translation, we say sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them, okay? This, this sounds like a big order, right? And sounds kind of, you know, this thing of saving, a savior, it sounds very Christian. Um, and there's different translations, and I just picked two. One from ZCLA, which is our mother temple, the Zen Center of Los Angeles. And then they translate it as Numberless beings, so they take out the sentient part. I vow to serve them. So they don't even have a verb, sentient beings are numberless. They don't even say beings are numberless. They just say numberless beings, it's a fact. I vow to serve them. So I vow to serve the numberless beings. And beings that, like I said, that includes the rocks and the bees and the flowers and the cats and the dogs and the rivers and everyone here and everyone not here and the people celebrating in the village and people passing on the train, everything. I vow to serve them. That too sounds like a big order, right? Um, and then another translation from Upaya, which is a big center that also is part of our lineage, they translate it as, creations are numberless. I vow to free them. So instead of save, they say free. In Los Angeles, they say serve. And then, no, that was, for that line, those were the only two I had. Um, so what is going on here, right? These are all translated from Japanese and Japanese translated from Chinese. Um, so what is going on here? They all are pointing to the, the infinite beings um, and 
something that I am vowing to, some action I am vowing to take, right? <laughs> I personally don't like save, and as many of you know, I've been thinking for a long time about changing that. I don't like that verb. Um, it's not that there's anything wrong with the verb, I just don't think that's really what it's about. So, um, already when we, whatever it is we're saying, we're just saying, it's infinite the number of beings, and I vow to do something with them, okay? Or for them. The first point is, it sounds overwhelming. Actually, the point is that by when we say they're infinite, it means that this being right here in front of me is the one that I should pay attention to. There are, every being I encounter is the one I should pay attention to. It's infinite, which means that everyone is included and every being I encounter, every meeting I have, is what I'm supposed to be paying attention to. I'm vowing to pay attention to. Every being, everyone I meet, each one. Um, so pay attention to, like, I prefer that instead of save, because how do I best save by paying attention to? So, you know, if I give my attention to a homeless person in the street, I may not give, I can't possibly give a euro to every homeless person I meet. I, I don't have that kind of money um, because it's infinite, right? And I'm not rich. Uh, but I can give my attention to the people. Meaning I might smile. I might, if I have an extra orange, give it to them. I might stop and say hello. Um, I, I don't know. But I can have that person in the, in the panorama of my awareness, right? I just pick a homeless person because we think of that someone who we should save, right? Someone we should help. But the same thing applies to everyone, to every person we meet. We can have that kind of um, presence, um, kindness in our interaction with whoever it is, instead of pushing them out of the way. Um, I realized at the airport that it wasn't clear which line I was supposed to be in, and I asked a woman, and she said, she explained to me, and then I got in that line, and I realized that by getting in the line, I went in front of her, because I didn't realize she was in that line. So I stepped back and let her go ahead of me. Um, because I was paying attention, I could do that. If I hadn't been paying attention, I wouldn't have even noticed that I had stepped in front of her. And if I hadn't been really paying attention, I would have not cared. I would have been, well, I want to get on the plane before her. And actually, we both agreed that it didn't really matter who was in front of the other one because we were all going to get on the plane and have to sit there for however long. So, But it's that, we think of that as something small, but that's enormous, right? That's a huge attention to have to each interaction. And that's what this vow is saying. So when we say, I vow to serve them, like they do in Los Angeles, that's because they're thinking of 
the, the archetype in, in Buddhism is the Bodhisattva, who is there to serve others, is there to help others, bring others to the other shore, we say. The fact is, there is no other shore, it's here. So basically the Bodhisattva is just here to help people realize that they are already here, something like that. It serves them in that way. Um, freeing them, this, the, you know, this comes closer with Yupaya, freeing them, that comes closer to the thing of saving where we're assuming that people are, need to be freed, that they're not free. Well, in a sense that is true, in, in the sense of, um, we call this a path of liberation, because we become liberated from everything that binds us and is keeping us tight and is keeping us caught by our emotions and our desires and our um, patterns. We become free from those attachments. But the truth is nobody can free you. Um, I'm not going to argue with Joan Halifax in her translation, but in my experience, I can't free anyone. Everyone frees themselves. I can give some indications. I can share my experience. My indications come from my experience. Um, I can set up some conditions like this that I think might be helpful for you, but I can't free you. And if you were looking for me to free you, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but it's not going to happen. Um, but that's actually really good news, you know, that you don't need somebody else to free you. So I, I would not, you know, um, I would not chance, I, chant I vow to free them, and I probably will stop chanting I vow to save them. I just chant save them is because that's what I learned, and that's, you know, but I really want to change that. Serve them is maybe better. And I have con contemplated see them. That's the one that I've contemplated for quite some time. I vow to see them. Um, and then the next vow, I'm, I have to be aware of the time. We have a few more minutes, okay. So the next vow that we chant is delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. So this still, this, I guess we can probably all agree that we're aware that the delusions are inexhaustible. It seems endless, we can't, you know, we're constantly something else, something else, something else. Um, it's never clear enough, I'm never aware enough, I'm never, you know, whatever we think of as deluded. Um, we, you know, we're pretty familiar with that, inexhaustible. But then we say, well, I'm going to put an end to them. Well, if something is inexhaustible, how can I end it, right? Um, in ZCLA, they chant the same thing without the verb. So, inexhaustible delusions, I vow to end them. Same thing. In Upaya, they say, delusions are inexhaustible, like we do. I vow to transform them. So now this, this notion of transforming is interesting. Um, this is more a, um, a Vajrayana uh, 
thing of transforming delusion into illusion, into enlightenment. Um, transforming what we think of as negative emotions and things into positive, healthy, or unhealthy emotions into healthy. So we transform jealousy into generosity, for example. So that's how, um, that, that's where this transforming comes from, I think, in this translation. Um, so basically they're saying, I vow to transform these delusions into enlightenment. Um, but if they're inexhaustible, how can we do that? And the same with uh, ending them. How can we do that? If, it's, if, they, if they never stop, how can we do that? So maybe we can see that as what I vow to do is to see this inexhaustible quality and see that it's never ending and then transform or uh, they are transformed when we see that. When we see that we can't stop it, it's transformed and then um, we no longer are deluded about the fact that we will end them. So this, this, you know, this is another one of these uh, contradictions or paradox that by when we say I vow to put an end to them, we're actually saying I vow to not try to put an end to them, something like that. <laughs> Sounds crazy, um, but experientially, if you look into it, you may see what that is being said. That's why transform is not bad, actually, in my experience as a, as a translation, about to transform them. Because when we truly, truly look into the nature of our inexhaustible delusions, we see their impermanent nature and we see what the root of that is. And the root is my attachment to me. So if jealousy, for example, because I use that example, that is an example. So in jealousy, I, am, I want what the other person has. And I'm jealous of that person because they have it. Um, or I want someone to love me and they don't. And I'm jealous of the person that they love. Uh, but when we can see into the nature of that, that it's really empty, that emotion that we're experiencing, um, and that it's this elusive me, this me who I'm thinking I am, is feeling this thing that has no consistency, then, and I don't have anything, I can share whatever I think I have. I can rejoice, I can be happy with the other person's happiness. We call this shared joy. I can take joy in someone else being happy. Um, I can be happy for them because they have that car that I thought I wanted. But actually, they're enjoying that car. And I don't need that car. I have my own car. So why do I want someone else's car? Um, this is transforming the... And maybe that's what they're getting at with this vow at Upaya. Um, and then we have reality is boundless. We chant, I vow to, do we say perceive or see? To see. To see. 
see it. See it, we see it, yeah. In French, we say it, c'est le voir. Le voir. Yeah, right. What? Yeah, it's perceived, yeah. So um, that's what they say at Upaya. Reality is boundless. I vow to perceive it. And here we go again with Los Angeles, completely different. Same thing with the boundless dharmas, boundless, but they say dharmas, not reality. And they say, I vow to practice them. So the boundless dharmas, I vow to practice them. Sounds very different from reality is boundless, I vow to perceive it, right? Well, the root of all of this used to be in Dana, where I practiced and where Debbie practiced and Joa as well. Um, we, in the very, 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 very early years, it was also Dharma. I think it was the... Dharma gates. Before that even it was Dharma gates, yeah, but it used to be the Dharma is boundless or something. Um, or unlimited or something. Originally it's the Dharma gates. So that's where in ZCLA they're, this is where they're coming from. The Dharma gates meaning the the entrances, we think of gates as being an entrance, so the entrances to awakening, the entrances to seeing clearly, the entrances to seeing reality, things as they are. So that's what Dharma gates are. Then it, now they, in ZCLA they just reduced it to Dharmas. Dharmas we think of as all phenomenon. This is a Sanskrit word that is all phenomenon. Everything. Everything is boundless. I vow to practice it. Interesting, right? Um, that's what we say when I always tell you life is practice and practice is life. So paying your house payment, that's practice. Changing your child's diaper, that's practice. Um, buying a new television set, if that's what you need to do. Um, swimming in the swimming pool, that's practice. Every single moment is a Dharma gate. Um, so in one sense we're saying I vow to see the reality, which is maybe not so clear actually. Maybe we may have to revisit that vow too because when we say reality is boundless, okay, we know what that means, more or less, maybe not, but um, I just, and I'm vowing to see that it's boundless. Well, that's kind of abstract. Whereas if we say, you know, the Dharma gates are boundless, everything is a Dharma gate, I vow to practice them. That's more concrete. That's more like, I vow to make my life my practice. Every single thing I do at every moment is practice, is a Dharma gate. Um, interesting. <coughs> And then we have the fourth one. We say, um, the Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. At ZCLA, they say, unsurpassable Buddha way. So they just leave out the verbs in the first clause always. I vow to embody it, like we say. Upaya, they say, the awakened way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. 
I think they took out the Buddha because they were trying to take out any words that had jargony sounds to them or something, or making it sound like it was something, it's not my way, it's the Buddha's way. Um, and then I found Gary Snyder, the great Zen poet, beat poet, um, maybe you've never heard of him, but he was a, he is, he's still alive, he was a comrade of Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg and poet, great poet, and went off to live in Japan in a monastery, became a Zen master and lives out in the wilderness in California, has very informal, formal practice, let's say. But his version is, Buddha's way is endless, I vow to follow through. I vow to follow through. I vow to continue on. The way is endless, I vow to continue. Unfortunately, I couldn't find what his translations were of the other vows. I didn't really have time before I came. Um, but I'm going to look them up because he's always really interesting, Gary Snyder, how he interprets things. Um, in any case, when we say it's, so he says endless, these other translations we say unsurpassable, meaning it doesn't mean it's the highest way. It means there's nothing that is not that way. You can't go above it, you can't go below it, because there is nothing above or below. It's just this. This awakened way, the Buddha's, when we say the Buddha way, that's just another way. It's the Buddha, that just means awakened one. So the awakened way is, you can't go beyond it. And I vow to embody it, meaning I vow to be it. Not you, we used to be I vow to attain it. But there's nothing to attain. All you have to do is be. Be you, who you truly are. And that's what it is to wake up, to be truly who you are. Like I come back to my beginning of my practice of who am I? Um, so I'm only telling you all of these things because you're here for the first time, you're hearing this stuff, you have no idea what it's being said. You're not here for the first time, you've said this stuff over and over and over again, you don't even think about it anymore. It's good to have a refreshing new take on it and look at different translations and different experiences and maybe when you chant it, then think, hmm, what am I really saying? What are we? And maybe you'll go through a phase where you don't chant it. I went through a phase where I didn't say any of this stuff. I, I just made me almost sick to my stomach to chant these things. And I stopped. And my teacher and my teacher's teacher said, fine, don't do it. Um, and I really just, I had to return to some what was meaningful for me. Um, it is, there is a real power in saying it even if we don't know what it means. Some of these, in some, sometimes we chant in, in Sanskrit or in Japanese, and that's amazing too. This really powerful chanting, chanting, chanting. We have no idea what we're saying. There's one of the chants that we do that, the Enmei Juko Kanengyo, which is really powerful. Especially if we do like, when if someone has died or 
on, at the New Year, on New Year's Eve, we chanted 108 times. Endless, endless, endless chanting of just these Japanese syllables. We have no idea what we're chanting. And yet, there's an opening of the heart to this impersonal, to the unknown, to the mystery. And it's, the mystery becomes clear. It's not that the mystery has been cleared, but it, the mystery is clear that there's mystery. I see the servers leaving. What time is that? What? Okay. So maybe I will stop speaking for a minute. And if you have questions or comments or things that we have, you know, a few minutes, 10 minutes. It's always good to hear what other people have to say. Or if you have questions or your experience of hearing this. Or I just think that we should keep serve or, or something like or help the beings, or something. Uh, because the, the first vow is already to see everything. So everything, all the vows will be to see beings, to see illusions, to see boundless reality. So, and I think there's a positive uh, uh, meaning to helping other beings. Yeah. That has been part of my hesitation. For Originally, I thought of changing it to see. I vowed to see them. But since we already, like you point out, we already have that, I'm just trying to find another one. So I think serve may be the one we go to. I think I, I find paying attention. Paying attention is good. It's a little cumbersome to translate, but maybe if we could find a shorter word for them. Recognize. 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 Acknowledge. Acknowledge. Good ideas. This serve is always, for me at least, in a Christian background, there's always this kind of charity that I am the one who is able to give to someone who is lacking. Or I have to make myself little because the person, other person, you know. Yeah, there's always this hierarchy uh, trap, which is very difficult for us to to surpass. Yeah. Recently, um, because of the rituals, and I was giving a, a retreat myself, and there was two or three people, persons, who were a bit um, off. What do you mean off? Um, separated themselves not well mm. <clears throat> and with the purpose to, to to bring them to the body of the group I I introduced this um, this way of walking meditation instead of just okay. just let's walk <clears throat> and it was very beautiful to see how it worked, you know, the rituals with the, because there's a synchronicity and a, gets synchronized with with each other, and I felt that oh, a good um, not come back, but to to be in the in the group more in the group. It's not just that, but that really 
I thought uh, the, a deeper meaning of, of this practice of walking meditation is sometimes the scene of the synchronization of everyone is really wonderful. Yeah, because that's that's what it's about. Yeah, absolutely. In a sense, yeah, absolutely, yeah. because you know, like we say, uh, um, well, we don't say, but. <laughs> We, we, you know, we experience that um, we are completely here now, and yet we know that we won't always be. And yet we don't know when that is. Um, death is certain, but the moment is uncertain. Um, and we don't even know what death is. And yet, so then how can we fully live here now you know, with knowing that? And that's... Uh, that's a challenge for us. And yet that's the beauty of our life as well. So, yeah. so how can we attain to the meaning of this in advance of being a talking for that sometimes? Let go and then just change and we do the same way. Um, well, when we chant, we just chant. So when you're chanting, Probably, I would assume you're not thinking about what you're chanting, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, and the, you know, like we say, we have a koan that is, you know, to gain results through true words. Um, true words is just being one with the words. So it doesn't mean understanding with our head. It's like one in our heart with the word. And the best way to do that is just to chant it. Just this. We say, Bernie Glassman used to say, if you, the, the Heart Sutra starts with Avalokiteshvara, doing deep uh, Pajnaparamita. If you just chant the ah, fully, completely ah, the whole thing is chanted. So when we chant, we chant. At other moments, you can contemplate the meanings, maybe. But when we chant, we just chant. It's my experience. It's like the quality of contemplating. Like you're not rationalizing, but there's a feeling. Yeah. Isn't it? So it's, it's just there. Obviousness or uh, in, in this in this four hours. Because we are also not just chanting. There's some quality of each vow and yet it's not your thinking mind that is yeah. introducing yeah. it yeah question uh, uh, 
uh, along the years, uh, a lot of people are serving other people. Uh, the Buddhist tradition has uh, 2,000 uh, years. Uh, maybe some bodies have appeared, uh, helping others. Uh, my question is, uh, do you believe that we are getting better? As, as a whole, as a, as a collective, we are getting better. What do you mean by better? If you are more aware of our, our, of ourselves, um, or better nature. Do you mean, um, who, who is we, do you mean? Hmm. Well, I don't think in terms of better or worse, um, you know, life is every moment and like we said, you know, we chant it's infinite beings, uh, delusions are inexhaustible. Um, obviously things change, but that's impermanence. So everything changes. Um, uh, I think what, what is, for me, I know my life has changed and I've seen the lives of so many other people change through this practice. So in that sense, there, I, I've witnessed real change. Yes, definitely. Um, other, I've witnessed other things that haven't changed. Other people who haven't of course, they've changed, but not in the same way that I feel I've changed or I've seen other people change. Everything is changing all the time. Um, to, you know, to say that is humanity changed, it's obviously it's changed. But to say that it's better, that's like having a result, a way that it should be, and yet we can't, I mean, there's no, we, we're lost if we focus on some kind of result. Um, as we were saying in the car with the two Pedros when we were talking about uh, Joanna Macy or you know the climate issues. Um, Sorry, I lost you. We were no, we were having a conversation in the car coming here oh, okay. and talking about you know if we're focusing on a result, then we lose our way because we're not really paying attention to what's here now. Yeah. And the result, like I said, the result will never be what we think it is. And if we start saying better or worse, too, that's, there, there isn't better or worse. There's just this. Um, something that is encouraging, however, is that, in fact, there's a lot encouraging in what I've just said. Um, what is encouraging is that this practice that we call Buddhism has, you know, started like on the foothills of the Himalayas near Nepal 2,500 years ago, like you say, with just some guy who was talking to people in villages and fields and, you know, he was talking to a stonecutter, he talked in stonecutter language. If he was talking to a, a statesman, he talked in statesman language. Um, and that guy started what we are still doing now, and it's you know, gone, it's crossed borders, it's, you know, gone through different languages and different forms and different structures and rituals and the same basic thing is still going today. 
And it hasn't been, you know, Christianity has like spread, but through like horrific wars and persecutions and forcing people to convert and all kinds of stuff. Whereas Buddhism, there's none of that. It's just someone telling their experience and telling you you can have that experience too. I find that encouraging. Um, it's not necessarily better than Christianity or worse, or it's not necessarily you know, better than not practicing Buddhism, um, but it happens to be my way and I find it encouraging to see that how that way is alive and well and functioning by, by not saying this is better or worse or saying this is how you should dress or this is how you should speak um, or this is what you should believe. So I think you started out by saying, do you believe? And I, yeah. and I don't so believe anything. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I don't, you know, I can only witness and then share my, what I've witnessed. You say that you do not believe. Well, when he said, do I believe it's become better? I, I, I can't say that because at first I wouldn't say better or worse. And um, I, I, even saying believe is a hard word to say because I, this is what I'm experiencing, you know? Which the word of um, change believe from Yeah, maybe, yeah, to, to experiencing this. May I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. I'm going to moments of great suffering, and I know that uh, one of the first uh, uh, one of the first statements of Buddha is that uh, suffering suffering is part of life as uh, Happiness, and I try to remember all the time when I'm really suffering a lot. I'm trying to remember that it's natural. I don't need to be suffering because I'm suffering. And I don't need. I don't need to be that is uh, something wrong about me because uh, I'm suffering. What do you? Yeah, yeah. That that's that's wonderful if you can do that. Um, because then that changes how you experience the suffering in yourself. Exactly. Uh, it's true, you know, that was his, the Buddha basically said, uh, if you could reduce his, he said, my teaching is reduced to two things, suffering and the end of suffering. Um, that's a whole nother <laughs> subject, but, but exactly what you're saying, that, that's a good example of how it's transformed. Yeah. Because we're all like you, we're all suffering, and that's why we're here, one way or another. I think it's probably time now. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Um, so let's put everything back. And maybe do a quick kinhin, uh, Joanna, so we can uh, go to the toilet if people need to.